3: everyone welcome back to software radio software radio on time on target we're here with another superb podcast we have a great guest with us uh today uh we're going to be talking with the former air force fighter pilot dan hampton he's also an accomplished author and we're going to be talking with him about his most recent book that's uh coming out i believe in september um and it's called operation vengeance it's about the military's basic assassination attempt on admiral yamamoto in world war ii it is a fantastic read we're going to be talking all about that but first we want to welcome dan to the podcast. Dan, thank you for taking the time uh and joining us here on software radio and uh, i hope everything's going well for you out there
4: uh you know i'm dodging thunderstorms out here on top of the mountains but it's uh it's a pleasure to to speak with you today and i appreciate the uh the opportunity. The book comes out actually next week, not September, so don't wait till September to buy it.
3: <laughs> oh, okay. Well, there you, there you go. Um, I must have your book confused with somebody else's. But uh, yeah, okay, folks, I uh, stand corrected on that. It comes out next week. So look for that everywhere. I think you can buy an advanced copy of that on Amazon.com. Uh, we were lucky enough to, and you were kind enough to share an advanced copy with us. And I can tell all of our listeners out there, and I read this. This is has to be one of those must-read books. If you're a military history buff, this is one that you have to read. But we're going to get to that in just a bit, because we want to talk to you real briefly about your uh, your military career. You were Air Force fighter pilot. Um, hundred from what I read about you, 151 combat missions. And, uh, um,
4: yeah, that's true. I I flew uh, for 20 years in one day. Um, I uh, I enjoyed it very much. I was I was happy to leave when I did, but I loved uh, loved flying fighters, and and I loved you know I loved that lifestyle and the and doing something that was that was important and uh, getting to see the world a little bit. So yeah, I had I had a great time.
3: So you know, where was your first duty station?
4: I went to Germany uh right at the very end of the Cold War. I think I think the Soviet Union hung on for a year after I got there. So, you know, we went there expecting to uh to fight the Russian hordes in the Fulda Gap and and I was a bachelor at the time. I I could get everything I owned in my car. Uh so it was uh it was it was great fun. It was a great time to be there and then uh the first Gulf War rolled around and and we all got sent somewhere none of us had ever heard of. <laughs> but for a couple of years, I had a great time in Germany.
3: You know, I can imagine, because if you're a single guy stationed in Germany and you're a fighter pilot, I imagine there was plenty of, uh, what, what's a nice way of saying it? distractions out there for you
4: targets of opportunity yeah there, there were that um and this was, <laughs> was before a
3: rich environment
4: <laughs> yeah this was before political correctness saturated the military so yeah, it was a lot of fun my disposable income went to a porsche and traveling so uh i i had a i had a really good time that changed very rapidly but i have fond memories of it
3: oh yeah, yeah we all do and uh, yeah yeah
4: <laughs> now
3: when you were in uh in the first Gulf War, were you flying, um, like, uh, hunting for ADA systems, or were you doing brown stuff, or strictly air-to-air?
4: No, we were, uh, we were wild weasels uh, out of Spangdalam, the 52nd uh, Tactical Fighter Wing. So our job was to go out and pick fights with anti-aircraft guns and surface-to-air missiles. And get them to reveal where they were by shooting at us, and if we survived, then we'd go and and kill them so they didn't bother anybody else. It's a lot of fun.
3: <laughs> well, I remember seeing the you know all the stuff because uh, during that time uh, we were still cleaning up the mess from the winter before in Panama, uh, and that's where I was stationed. So uh, we were down in Panama. We were watching all this on the news every night when we get home what you guys were doing over there in the desert, and I don't know how sophisticated their anti-aircraft systems were, but it seemed like they had a slew of them.
4: Yeah, they had a lot. The uh, The French, uh, of course, had sold them everything they had and put together a, a pretty decent system, and then most of the, the missiles came from the Soviet Union. Um, so it was interesting in that we'd been studying these and training to fight against them and we actually did, but we, you know, they obviously weren't manned by Russian guys. They were, well, most of them weren't, they were manned by, uh, Iraqis using a French system. So how much worse could it get for them? Right. (laughs) Uh, anyway, they, they, they didn't last very long. So, uh, no worries.
5: (laughs) Yeah.
3: Well, it seemed like after the first few days, their, uh, their AAA system was, Basically, put it on a service.
4: Yeah, they're Sams, they're Radars, they're AAA, and they realized they weren't going to be able to to fight us, so they they quit using it because every time they used it, you know, we'd we'd whack it, and they wanted to have something left for after the war. It was the same thing with their with their fighters. You know, when when you know, you were in the military, you know, when when a bunch of guys go out on a morning mission and don't come back, that's sort of a downer for morale, right? And that's what was happening to the <laughs> yeah. Iraqi Air Force. Every time guys would take off, they'd never come back. So the ones that were left said, hey, "We're not. We're not doing this." And so uh, we rerolled to uh, air to ground. You know, we would do close air support and and uh, and, and and surface attack against the big targets. And that's what we did until the war ended.
3: Yeah, I remember. You know, again, like we were still down in South America at the time, but watching all that unfold and then in the last days of the war when they, it seemed like they just hit the panic button and tried to get out of kuwait with everything they could on that one highway it just seemed like absolute chaos there
4: uh, it was a turkey shoot we called you know it was called the highway of death for a reason and i remember looking down at that and thinking you know this is you know because they shortly thereafter they we, you know we signed that armistice and and we had to let all those those guys go, and I just knew we were gonna we were gonna be back, and sure enough, we were, and I was there for that one too. I've always been in the wrong place at the wrong time.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, about a year or two later, I was talking with the F-15 pilot from the Air Force, and uh, I was asking him about that, and uh, and he was like, "If you flew down that highway, you could have dropped bombs with your." Uh, or any kind of ordinance whatsoever with a blindfold on and you would hit something.
4: That's yeah. how
3: jammed up it was.
4: It was, and, it, was uh, it was only one road. I think it's highway one. It runs, you know, North and South from Baghdad to Kuwait. It's the only big road there. And yeah, it was just clogged. So wow. uh, the second, the second war was, was a lot more interesting, but the first one was a, was a good introduction to it all.
3: Yeah. Well, let's, uh, I know uh, you have places to go and things to do, so I, I want to jump right into the book now. Uh, you know, as I as I said in the opening, this was a fascinating book, and you know, I love military history, so I'm a you know, I eat this stuff up. But the detail that went into this uh, was fantastic. It's about the Guadalcanal campaign and what unfolds because of that. How long did this book take you to put together
4: it takes me about a year uh to Mm -hmm. to write a book and um this one i actually i think i turned this one in in september of last year yeah it's september so it takes another takes another almost a year then to edit it and get it into production so each book takes about two years uh to do but uh you know i i thoroughly enjoyed this because I was never really a a World War II historian, but my last couple books have dealt pretty significantly with that. And as you said, you know, the more I researched it, the more I realized how central Guadalcanal was to it. I mean, not only is that a great story about a, a, a big fight, but if that hadn't happened and we hadn't won that, there would have been no base to fly from to shoot down Yamamoto. So that's why I put so much detail in it about that.
3: Yeah, and that was the fascinating part of this whole Operation Vengeance was, you know, um, if you look at everything that transpired in Guadalcanal and everything seemed to be favoring the Japanese, except the fact that, you know, they were overconfident, they were kind of arrogant. And you, you bring all this up, they didn't believe the Americans could stand up to them. And they made so many mistakes in this battle that cost them dearly. And uh, a lot of this I hadn't read before, especially when dealing with their psyche. I didn't realize to the extent that how arrogant they actually were, and that really, really cost them.
4: Yeah, and I mean, you know yourself you you can't you can't underestimate an opponent. I mean, it's as dangerous to to overestimate one as it is to underestimate them. But they they clearly underestimated us, and. You know, a lot of that is who they'd been fighting. You know, they'd been fighting the Russians and the Chinese, and they they'd gone through them, you know, like a hot knife through butter. And the first few months fighting us because they caught us by surprise and they you know hit us in some ill places like the Philippines and Wake Island and and other places. They you know they they wailed on us pretty good for a few months. But that was all that all came to an end. You know, pretty much after the Battle of Midway. And by the time we invaded Guadalcanal, you know, we were we were beginning to catch our breath and get our second wind. And industry in the United States was was catching up to the millions of guys that were volunteering to fight. And that's exactly why Yamamoto said, you know, he flat out told his emperor that, uh, you know, if you want me to go to war, I can run wild for six months or a year. But after that, I make no guarantees because he, he knew America. He knew us and he knew what would happen if he didn't win quickly and and you know the the guadalcanal campaign was was the stake in the ground you know that's what changed everything out there
3: yeah and um you know i had read about yamamoto in the past but one of the things that you brought up in the book that i wasn't aware of i knew he went harvard he lived in cambridge mass um which was only about 10 minutes from where i grew up but um you know, it's um, I, I understood all that, and he actually liked America, and he liked Americans. But I didn't realize that he wanted to see our country, and he, one summer he hitchhiked his way all the way to Texas.
4: Yeah, you know, I didn't know that either until I, I got into the research. And that's one reason why I enjoy the research so much, because I I always find out how much I don't know. You know, and and I usually come out with another story idea <laughs> from from the research that I do. In fact, I did from this book. I signed a contract for another book dealing with World War II based on something I found researching this one. But yeah, Yamamoto was in America a few times—Harvard, like you said—and then he was the naval attaché in Washington. Um, he hitchhiked uh, down to Texas and saw Mexico, and and he and he liked it here, and he liked us. He he had learned English. As a small boy from a Christian missionary in Japan, and he, you know, he didn't, he wasn't in favor of war with the United States, but what people have to realize, and I know you appreciate this, you know, he was a serving military officer. When his country went to war, he was going to go fight no matter who they were going to fight, and and he was going to do his best to win, and he did. He He tried his best. That's why he had to go. Yeah, and, you know, he
3: was the mastermind behind the, the entire Pearl Harbor thing. And, you know, uh, some of the other naval officers, they, you know, that was another part of the book that I really liked was this, there was such a disconnect between the naval officers and the army officers of Japan and how they uh, took it beyond a feud that they actually had assassination, um threats against Yamamoto and how the army was had such a different mindset than the 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 Navy when it came to the Americans
4: well and yeah you're exactly right and and everybody the army the army really maintained the old traditional samurai you know uh, psyche and, and mindset So did the Navy the naval officers but the the army guys were even more into that and then the average You know, the average army conscript was usually a farmer from some village somewhere who didn't know anything, you know, beyond his village. And he was going to do whatever he was told. And when you, you know, when you have bad officers telling you to do bad stuff in that sort of environment, they're going to do it. And, And fortunately for us, and this is something I also hadn't realized, the Imperial Army was always, always more concerned with Russia. At least at the beginning of the war than they were with us they thought the Pacific War would be a Navy war uh, like you know we primarily used the Navy and the Marines they thought that's what they would you know the Japanese would do so they were they kept a million men in in China to fight the Russians because they were always afraid they were going to have to go to war with the Russians again if they, had, if they had moved even a portion of those divisions into the Pacific, I mean, can you imagine what that would have meant for Guadalcanal if, if they put five divisions on there instead of one? You know, so it's a good, it's a good thing they, they did underestimate it. It's just a good thing that they did suffer from, a, you know, a hubris. Um, it worked out well for us and bad for them.
3: you right, and in the book you, you talk about all this stuff. That's why, again, I mean, the detail in this was really fantastic and um then you know uh you talk about how the americans broke the japanese code they found out where yamamoto was going to make a frontline visit a lot of his officers started talking about it um and then the planning that went into it and again there you learn something new every time you read a book i didn't i never realized the level of jealousy that was going on inside the american camp because the Army Air Corps at that time, before we had an Air Force, uh, they were the only people that had a fighter that hadn't ranged long enough to go after them, and it kind of rubbed some of the Marine pilots on Guadalcanal, and especially the Navy brass the wrong way in this.
4: Yeah, really the Navy brass. The um, There were a couple guys on Guadalcanal that, that didn't much like the Army pilots, and and a lot of that, and that's why I put so much history about Guadalcanal in it. I wanted people to realize, you know, we weren't one big happy family either. We had our own <laughs> inner service rivalries and, and issues, but Guadalcanal was such a hole, you know, that after a while, and you know, you've been in bad places. After a while, that's the big equalizer, right? When when you're all in the in the crap together, then the differences between you kind of go away. <laughs> And 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 that's how they that's how they came to feel about about these guys. The real problem with the with the Navy was from, you know, Bull Halsey, who has sort of a mixed a mixed review. I mean obviously he did a good job at Midway, but he screwed up a lot of other things and the Yamamoto mission was was one that, you know, I personally came away not thinking very highly of his reaction to all this because he was willing to let inter service rivalry get in the way of of uh, rewarding these guys because these guys two of them were written up for medals of honor and and Halsey uh canceled it you know he wouldn't approve it um so that that didn't strike me the the right way the guy that was in charge of naval aviation on guadalcanal though was mark mitcher and he was the captain of the uss hornet you know when doolittle launched against tokyo uh, mitcher was a was a good guy and a good pilot and everybody thought highly of him so
3: yeah, and then the planning that went into this, um, and then reading it, and I'm trying to. You know, I'm not a pilot. I, I was a, <laughs> I was a ground pounder. So anybody who can fly an aircraft automatically is way above my.
4: Okay. Anybody who carry a gun and come get me if I get shot down is okay with me. <laughs> yeah. Right back at
3: you. Right, but uh, you know what? Uh, you know, there, there's times when that. The sweetest sound you can hear is an American aircraft coming over your back. So uh, you, know, you know, but going back to that, I thought from the from the book that John Mitchell, the job he did, because I know how difficult it is to navigate with a map and compass, you know, through astic terrain. This guy's going across an ocean of fifty feet, fifty to one hundred feet off the deck. And he had his timing down so perfectly. It was amazing that, you know, and I believe in the book they arrived within a minute of Yamamoto, didn't they?
4: Yeah, yeah. And Mitchell is an unsung hero, in my opinion, you know, because he, and you got to understand, these guys are flying combat missions every day. So to them, when this first came down, they didn't know initially it was Yamamoto, it was just another mission. Now, Mitchell got permission to tell the pilots who they were going after because he thought it might make a difference and it, you know, maybe it did, but they were going to go, they were going to go kill him anyway, but they didn't have a whole lot of time to do this. Mitchell was a consummate professional, you know, he, he looked at the Navy's attempt at the plan and said, no, it isn't going to work. And so, you know, in the space of a couple hours, he replanned the whole thing, which, which isn't really that hard to do. Um, But he had some other, he had some other problems. He had to get some long range fuel tanks for his airplanes. They weren't on Guadalcanal. You know, he had to pick the he had to pick the pilots and he had to work out all the timing. And, you know, he did all of that, you know, step one, two, three, because he was he was so good at it. And again, that's why I put so much in about the battle for Guadalcanal, because Mitchell got there in October of 1942, you know, right kind of at the very beginning of all of that. and He was he was on the island flying those god awful, you know, Bell P400s before the P-38s got there, all through the bad days on Guadalcanal. So I thought that was a an effective way to introduce people to John Mitchell and the battle. But anyway, like you said, he, he had to do this you know, 416 miles or so over water at 50 feet. And I gotta tell you, anybody who flies at 50 feet is not doing much other than flying because if you look away for half a second, you're gonna be in the water or hit a mountain or something. And in his case, he did it all with his wristwatch, a map and a compass, you know, and to get there when he did within a minute of, of Yamamoto, you know, being where he was supposed to be is, is phenomenal uh, piloting skill. And I tried to get that across to the readers.
3: Oh, I thought that came across a lot because, again, I mean, you know, in this day and age, we're used to, you know, GPS and satellites and all that. Those guys didn't have any of that.
4: He, no, he didn't, know, he he didn't have any hat. of the cool toys I had. You know, I, <laughs> uh, I I wouldn't want to do that even in you know what what we had. It'd still be a challenge. And he he did it without all that stuff. So yeah, my hat's always off to that guy.
5: And, and didn't
3: um, I thought I read in the book? Didn't the Navy put one of their compasses, like a naval compass, into his aircraft so he could yeah, see he it? Yeah,
4: yeah. Yeah, he—he, he, you're exactly right. He—he he, he, the compass in the P38 was just, you know, a, a piece of dog poop. Poop? Did I say poop? Dog crap. Anyway, um, uh, it was it was garbage. But they didn't really need it because, you know, they were taking off from Guadalcanal and flying basically over Guadalcanal or the other islands where there were good landmarks, so they didn't really need a compass uh, until this mission came along. And he said, Hey, the one I have is, is awful. I need a good solid navy compass, because I know you guys are passionate about navigation. And so yeah, they put a boat compass. Uh they mounted it on his on his glare shield <laughs> during That's the night. Amazing. So we had that, yeah, yeah. It was it was interesting.
3: So ha- having you know seen a P thirty eight up close, I mean, I would imagine that is a cramped hot uh cockpit in there. There's not a lot of creature comforts for those guys. They're flying you know on the deck in obviously hot weather. It's probably hot inside there. That just has to add to the tension that's going on with these guys because obviously, I mean as you said, you're flying fifty feet off the deck for a couple of hundred miles. That has to be weighing, and then knowing you know there's a possibility you're going to be facing what, 50 to 100 Japanese zeroes when you get to your, you know, um, objectives?
4: Yeah, and, you know, again, that's another hats off to the professionalism of these guys because they, I'm sure, you know, every guy handles it differently. You know that. They weren't going to show it, but, you know, they they treated it like another mission. It's just something they had to do. So, you know, they, they were going to go do it. The cockpit actually um, isn't that cramped. Uh, it's bigger than the one i had in the in the f-16 uh but but it's hot yeah it had a you know it had a a a pretty good canopy you know a lot of a lot of uh, uh visibility which is nice but it also means that lets a lot of heat in um and you know down low like that uh they had problems with the you know the the cockpit fogging up and some other things so yeah it wasn't it wasn't an easy flight and then again unlike a normal combat mission for them where they would take off and they would go you know fight and land within an hour it was going to take them you know 2 hours just to get there so the tension and adrenaline that you have you know in a normal mission kind of kind of dissipates a little bit and you know that's a real that can be a real danger you can you know you can go to sleep or get complacent or or whatever, and none of them did that you know they all all sixteen of them arrived over Bougainville, you know right when they should have, so uh, again, hats off to them
3: right and uh, you know the uh, cruising speed for the because of the uh the fuel situation they they were probably traveling what, about two hundred miles an hour,
4: yeah, I think it came out to one ninety six with the wind, but they were mitchell planted for two hundred. Um, and they had they had about 400 miles to go to Empress Augusta Bay, um, so it was going to be a little bit over two hours, you know, counting the time it took to take off and get rejoined and everything. And fuel was fuel was tight. They couldn't have done it without those external tanks, you know. I think I, I did all the math in the in the book, but I think they had uh, a total of 781 gallons, and just just getting there and getting back uh, counted for 736 of it. <laughs> So they had he had about forty-five gallons, you know, of of slop in there, which would be maybe six minutes, maybe seven minutes over the target, you know, in full power combat mode, which isn't a lot of time.
5: Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. Over six billion dollars in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in twenty twenty three. If you're in a bind this tax season, Lifelock can help. Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. Go to LifeLock.com news and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at LifeLock.com news. Identity theft protection starts here.
3: You know, it's amazing. And uh, like you said, hats off to these guys, especially Rex Barber. Um, And you talk about him in the book. And, you know, before the war, he was like, you know, he was like the average Joe and living on, you know, the Western United States and, you know, he wanted to be a pilot. And he ends up playing a huge role in this. And uh, I I thought he did a great job of, uh, you know, Explaining how he ended up taking such a valuable role in this, and you know, explain to our listeners how that all unfolded, because uh, you know they got to their spot exactly where they thought they were going to be, and then they, they were surprised because they thought there was only one supposed to be one bomber, and there was two.
4: Yeah, yeah, Rex uh Rex obviously gets gets kudos for finishing it all up and he you know, he was typical in a lot of ways, like a lot of those guys, you know, he was raised during the Great Depression and something we have a hard time realizing now is just how tough, you know, the average young adult was in 1942, 43 because of the the childhood that most of them had. Rex Rex wasn't poor, but he was—you know—he was a farmer, and then he was a frat boy. He was like most pilots, pretty happy-go-lucky <laughs> for most of the time, but he could get serious when he had to, and he obviously had to get serious now. Um, the plan was with 16 P-38s that 12 of them, as soon as they hit Empress Augusta Bay, would climb up and go engage. You know the eighty Japanese zeros that we thought would be you know orbiting over the island or at least on call because this was their this was their naval commander in chief you know he was a national hero they we We just couldn't conceive that they wouldn't have every airplane on that island up you know as a show of force and also to protect him. but as you mentioned earlier, you know they suffered from arrogance and hubris, and they figured, hey, we're four hundred miles." From the Americans, and besides, they can't understand our language anyway. There's no risk, so you know we'll just have six escorts, you know, fly with Yamamoto, and and that's it. So Mitchell and his and his other eleven guys, when they separated and started to climb up, they found a big empty sky. You know, there wasn't there wasn't anybody waiting on them. So that leaves Lampier, Tom Lampier, leading the other four P thirty eights, and. They went to jettison their tanks and the last two guys in that flight of four, could couldn't. one of them couldn't get his tanks off. So I would have gone in anyway, I'd have kept the tank, but this guy circled back out over the water to try to get his tank off and his wingman went with him. So now it's just Lamphere and Barber uh, up against you know, the, the bomber. And a couple things happen all at once. First of all, they see that there's two bombers, like you mentioned, not one. Uh, which is no big deal, but then they see the close escorts, and there are six of them, uh, six Zero fighters. So Lampier does exactly what he should do. He, you know, tells Rex press on, you know, you're you're cleared off, and he he peels off and he goes one against six against the Japanese Zeros while Barber, you know, runs in and completes the intercept against the bombers. Yeah,
3: and uh, it was, I mean, the detail again. You you're talking about how that all transpired and he chewed up that first bomber, the one that ended up being the one that everyone was in. And, and, you know, um, they talk about his wounds after the fact and, and, you know, his plane gets shot down. And it seemed like um, it was just shrapnel, not really the the slugs of uh, the 50 cal and the 20 millimeter going in there. But, you know, it was amazing that one piece of shrapnel went under I believe it was under his left jar and came out under his eye and he had a death grip on his sword. He was still found clutching the sword and the wreckage of the plane. I thought that was it it was just kind of surreal when you when you read about that.
4: Well, and that was that was a real interesting and crucial part of the book because you know, a lot of the controversy that followed was Rex Barr or was a uh, lampier claiming that, that he's the one that shot Yamamoto down. So I, I really had to, you know, I had to get, I had to put myself in the cockpit. I had to, I had to, you know, fly the numbers. I had to, I had to get the world's oldest living P-38 pilot to check my math. And, and he did. And, and, you know, once you look at it, Objectively, mathematically, you know, and you realize there's no way Lampier could have done this. So then, how did Rex Barber do it? And like you said, you know, he he rolls in behind the the lead bomber, and the second bomber peels away, dives down for the jungle, and runs for the coast. Barber concentrates on on the bomber that he's shooting at. You know, and this whole you got to remember, a lot of people don't get how fast all this happens. I mean, even in a World War II P thirty eight, this thing was over in less than two minutes. And he, you know, he put four bursts into that airplane and you're exactly right. I mean, you know, if a 50 caliber slug hit somebody, that's, you know, it'd tear you in half. So it was, it was, it was the spalling. It was the pieces of the bullets or the cannon shells that actually killed Yamamoto. Um, one went in under his shoulder blade. And like I said, the other one, uh, the other one um, went in his, went in his head uh, and he died probably instantly. And that's why his hand, clutch the sword. I forget the medical term for it, but I put it in the book um, mm-hmm. because, you know, we got a hold of the autopsy results, and so, you know, there there really was no controversy. His plane went into the jungle, and I did all the math, and, you know, I don't want to ruin the surprise, but I, I mathematically proved that Lampier could have been nowhere near, you know, either bomber. Rex was fortunate, you know, when he came off of shooting down Yamamoto's bomber, he looked behind him, and he saw three of the zeros you know, coming down after him, and I'm sure he wanted to stay and fight, but he thought, all right, I've done what I need to do. I'm out of gas, and I'm, you know, 220 miles from home. I need to get out of here, and so he pushed the throttles up and headed for the coast, and he just happened to run across the second bomber and shot that one down, too, so he had a really good day. (laughs)
3: Yeah, I know. That was the amazing thing that I, you know, I never realized that part both of them, and... But that's where the controversy started because, um, you know, the pilots all made their way back to Guadalcanal, and then the uh, the pilot that you mentioned, Lanfear, uh, kind of blew everything out of the water by getting on the uh, unsecured oh, yeah. line and on, a, on to an the open board.
4: frequency, right? An open yeah. frequency, and he says that, and you know, there was some real opposition to the idea of, of shooting down Yamamoto because. We didn't want the Japanese to wonder, how did we get there at the right place at the right time? They must have broken our code. We're going to switch our code. We didn't want them to do that. And so there was a real good chance that, you know, they might have figured that out. They never did. But when Lanfear comes over on an open radio frequency and says, I, I shot the bastard down or something like that. I, I killed Yamamoto. You know, if, if a Japanese listening post had picked that up, even the Japanese couldn't have failed to, to realize what that meant. So, yeah, uh, yeah, that, but, man,
3: yeah. That opened up yeah. a whole can of worms, and Rex Barber seemed like he was kind of above it all. He didn't really care who was taking credit. He knew what he did.
4: But, yeah, he um, didn't, and, and neither did John Mitchell. You know, like I said all along, to these guys, to everybody but Lampier, it was just another combat mission. And as soon as they got down from this one, that you know, they had to plan and and get some food and get some rest for the one they were going to do the next day. So, you know, I'll I'll tell you from experience that, you know, after a a couple months of doing that, I mean, you're just worn out. You don't you don't really care. You just you know, you want to you want to figure out what you got to do tomorrow. And then you want to get something to eat and go to bed. And that's that's what they that's what they wanted to do. Um, You know, everybody but Lampier, he'd made it very plain right from the beginning that, you know, he wanted a political career after the war. And he saw this mission as a as a way to hang his, you know, to hang his reputation on, on what happened and claim credit for it. And, you know, aspire to high political office, which is what he wanted to do.
3: And, you know, the amazing thing is, is what he did was still a huge part of the mission and he had nothing to be ashamed of what he did. I mean, as you talked about in the book, he did exactly the right thing. He turned into six zeros. And allowed his one man to go after to go hunting. And, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, no, he, thought, he should have been. Yeah. He
4: should have been happy with that. You're exactly right. I mean, what he did allowed Rex Barber to do what he did. He should have been content with that. And going one against six, you know, that's a that's a ballsy move anyway. Now he didn't he didn't shoot any of them down, and they didn't get him. He just sort of blew through them, but he scattered them, you know, and he disrupted whatever they were planning on doing, and he gave Barber the chance to shoot down Yamamoto and get away. So he should have been content with that, but he wasn't.
3: Yeah, and then after, you know, his his radio call, uh, the guys kind of, and you talk about it in the book, they they talked to an AP reporter who was acting like, okay, yeah, I know all about this. And so they kind of admitted to what they had done. And then, again, you you mentioned it earlier, Admiral Halsey found out and tried to, instead of giving these guys the medal of honor that they deserved, he tried to have them court-martialed.
4: Yeah, he did. I mean, he was he was and you know, he had a he's looking at a big picture and like I said, the big picture is, hey, if the Japanese change their code over this, you know, we we could lose thousands of guys. So he had a legitimate concern, but that doesn't diminish what these guys did and Barber and Mitchell never said anything. You know, they didn't get on the radio and make any wild claims and they didn't they didn't admit anything to this reporter. I blame the Navy for letting this reporter Roam around in a you know in an area like that without anybody watching over him and making sure he isn't asking questions that he shouldn't shouldn't be asking because the average guy is going to assume hey you're here you have permission to be here I'm supposed to talk to you so I'm going to talk to you so right you know. and
3: if anyone leaked anything to the AP reporter it wasn't the army guys it was someone in the navy
4: yeah yeah and you know and in the end nothing happened the Japanese never. There was no harm done, so there was no reason not to swallow your anger and your pissiness and, and give these guys the reward, you know, that they deserve. And I hope, you know, we had this PR uh, blitz plan for this book release that can't happen now, obviously, because of the virus and everything else. But mm-hmm. what I was hoping would come out of it was somebody with enough authority would look at this and they would retroactively award you know, the medals of honor to Mitchell and, and Barber that they deserve.
3: Yeah, and that's something that, you know, someday let's hope that gets done. Uh, unfortunately neither one of them lived long enough to see it, but uh, I think it's a it's a worthy cause there to get these guys the 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 honor that they deserved, especially, you know, Barber shot down both of the bombers, but yeah. the chop yeah. Mitchell did that that entire getting them there in in the manner that he did as as quickly and as perfectly as he did, I think just an incredible feat of flying and that's coming from a non pilot. But
4: yeah. uh, well I you you've said a lot of nice things. I appreciate it. The book uh I again I I, I really like to try to redress historical wrongs when I can. You know through these through these books and this is one of them that i'm very passionate about because these guys deserve it if you think about the implications of yamamoto surviving okay uh what would have happened um you know japan was going to lose the war that was a foregone conclusion but yamamoto definitely could have made it even bloodier and probably longer than it was if he'd stayed alive so how many people are alive today because Rex Barber killed Yamamoto? You know, that's a great question. Yeah,
3: that is a great question. And and that's why I love these historical, uh, especially these World War II books. I, I grew up reading a lot about World War II because my father was involved in it in the European uh, campaign. And it was funny. My dad was like one of those typical backs like you're writing about. And it, it was funny because uh, he never talked about the war. But growing up, All the guys from his old unit used to come to our house in the summer. And about twice every summer, all the guys would get together. They'd bring their families over and we'd have like big barbecues in my parents' backyard. And then late at night, after the guys had a couple of drinks, that all the old vets would venture in the back where the garden was and they would just talk amongst themselves. Because my father never talked about what he did and I never knew what he did till after he, he passed away that one of the guys came to uh, the wake with my sister, my brother and I, and he was like, Did you ever read about the father? And I was like, Read what? He's like, he did a couple of books. And so now it, it opened up a whole new realm because then I started researching this and I found stuff about my father that I never knew. I'm reading about my own dad in a book. And that's one of my biggest regrets. I always wished that I could have talked to him about those things but that wasn't his style
4: he
3: he just didn't do that.
4: Yeah and and a lot of guys didn't and you know yourself because you're a, you're a veteran I mean people always ask they probably ask you too you know well, what was it like and and there's no frame of reference for that unless you're talking to somebody else that's been through something similar. And that's why your dad's friends you know would wait until everybody was gone and they'd go off in the garden and talk because you know who else are they going to talk to about this except other guys that have been there and done that right right yeah so you know but i I uh, I I bet you wish you had a tape recorder huh
3: (laughs) oh yeah yeah i would have loved to have been a fly on the wall back then because then then, you know reading about your own father in a book when they mention him by name uh it was pretty amazing and uh you know it it opened up a whole new realm and uh that's why i love history like that because there's so many of these stories and i love talking with the old vets uh especially the world war II guys because we're losing them at, at such a rate and you uh you know i thought you brought this book and, I, and again i encourage all our readers uh and listeners go out and buy this operation vengeance this is a fantastic book and you know you talk about the the characters in this and you get a feeling that by the end of the book that you actually know some of these guys and that's that's i think is a really you know uh it's a good way to feel like okay yeah i read this but now i actually feel like i know all these guys
4: well i gotta tell you that's about the nicest compliments you can give a writer so thank you (laughs) Um, you know, they, they become personal to me when I write about them and it, and it's weird. I actually sometimes start having dreams, you know, and, and we're all in the dream. You know, I, I spent so much time in the P-38 and, and talking to, you know, the, the guy, the couple guys that I could find that flew it, you know, that I'd start dreaming about it. And I felt like I, I knew these guys. You know, so I try to get as much of that across in the book as I can, as I could. So uh, hopefully, hopefully everybody feels that way. I I hope so.
3: Uh, I think everyone will. And again, uh, we want to encourage all our readers and listeners to go ahead and buy this. It should be included in your library. Uh, if you're a military historian, if you're just a, uh, somebody that loves reading a good story, you don't have to be into the military his- history side. Although most of our readers tend to be that way, uh, so, but you know, <laughs> uh,
4: again, it's very kind of you to say that. And I would, I would ask that if if people do get the book and they like it, uh, the Amazon reviews really help or Goodreads. Um, if you like the book, if you hate the book, then just send me an email and I'll send you a drink. <laughs> uh, but uh, if, you, if you like the book, it always helps to, to, to say something about it. doesn't have to be very involved, but that that always makes a difference. So thanks. Thanks for saying that.
3: Well, and we want to thank you for joining us. I know you have to be somewhere in a, in a very short amount of time. No, that's so, okay. If you have
4: any last questions, shoot them at me.
3: Well, I just – what's your next big project that you're looking at?
4: Uh, I actually just signed a contract with uh, a new publisher, uh, Macmillan, uh, St. Martin's Press, uh, on another World War II book that I hope will be the biggest one I've ever done. It's a fantastic story. I ran across it while I was researching Vengeance, and um, I am am enthralled with it, and I hope everybody else will be too. It should – should be delivered uh next year and published late next year i think is what we're shooting for so i can't tell you what it's about but it's uh, it's called valor and uh it's a it's a fantastic story
5: well we look forward to
3: reading that as well again this was a fantastic read uh we want to thank you for joining us this afternoon thank you for your time and uh good luck with the book and you know we're uh we're definitely gonna put a a good review in on amazon
4: well, I appreciate the kind words and the opportunity. And, you know, I'll always come back and, and chat about anything you want to. So get a hold of me whenever you like. I'll make time for it. Oh,
3: that, we look forward to that. In fact, when your next book comes out, we're going to get on your advanced calendar. So we're we're one of the first <laughs> people that uh, <laughs> you can uh, talk to about that one.
4: Perfect. Perfect. Well, thanks again.
3: Thank you for, uh, for joining us. And uh, for all of us here at Soft Rep Radio, we want to thank everyone for listening be sure to check out all our articles on the uh, website we want to thank our guest dan hampton for joining us it's a fantastic book folks operation vengeance it comes out next week make sure you put put it in your library for all of us here myself steve balassari all of us here at software radio thanks for listening we'll be back soon
2: You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury.